Welcome to the Embellish Podcast, where we like to talk about stories. We like to explore how embellishment makes a story better, how it allows us to connect more deeply with both the person telling the story and the subject of the story. Together, we will explore people, products, and places that have a story to tell. We'll navigate through the truths, half-truths, and outright lies and decide if truthiness even matters. Wright Thompson wrote, Whiskey is marketed as the antidote to change. I think this is probably the motivating factor of the modern resurgence of revival brands. Each of these brands are telling the same story from a different angle. But how did we get to a place where long-storied brands needed revival? Sometime in the mid-1900s, American whiskey and subsequently bourbon was falling rapidly out of favor with the American populace. Consumption was at an all-time low and brands were being consolidated left and right. Much of the reason can be attributed to the inability for whiskey and bourbon brands to place a good quantity of aged spirit back on the shelf post-prohibition. They were left to blend and mix whatever they could get their hands on to put something on the shelf to sell. I would suspect this combined with the fact that during Prohibition, clear spirits prevailed. Moonshine, bathtub gin, cocktails, and liquor that could be smuggled across borders were all shelf staple. Tequila, rum, Canadian whiskey all gained favor during Prohibition. However, during the 80s, the American consumer began regaining their taste for aged spirits. Manufacturers decided it was time to revisit the creating and maturation of the classic American spirit. The resulting gold rush within the bourbon industry left room for new brands to thrive. So how does one carve out an identity in such a crowded marketplace? Maybe it's not carving out an identity. Maybe it's about excavating the past that was buried in years of dust and muck. One of the first brands I'll talk about has a personal history with me. In 2015, my father retired in his line of work and advertising. As a part of the celebration of his career, my brother and I constructed a guys weekend in Nashville, Tennessee. My brother is a bit of a coffee snob, so we knew there would be a required visit to several of the local coffee shops, and my dad is a bit of a foodie, so good quality restaurants were on the table as well. Myself, well, I was a baby bourbon head at the time just beginning to really get my hands around this addiction. We knew that we would travel to Nashville for a weekend of food and coffee, but I happened across a distillery that had just opened, so I found a way to include whiskey. Once at Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery, one of the Nelson brothers hosted our tour of the distillery in the Marathon Village just outside of downtown Nashville. I wasn't entirely sure what I was going to discover when we got there, but it was uniquely surprising. They were what I would call a boutique operation. The building was filled with artifacts of their specific bourbon heritage. We'd later discover that the brothers were both history and philosophy buffs, so much that it was a central part of their collegiate education. During the tour, we would explore Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery's unique past within the state of Tennessee. Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery was at one point one of the largest distillers in the state of Tennessee. After the death of Charles Nelson, the founder of the distillery, his wife Louisa took over the distillery operations for another 19 years. Pre-statewide prohibition, they surpassed even Jack Daniels in quantity of spirits distilled. They even discussed on the tour their utilization of what is now known as the Lincoln County process. Similar to many other distilleries, they were forced to close down during Tennessee's statewide prohibition and then the nationwide prohibition that followed. Post-prohibition, the distillery remained closed and the family all but abandoned their roots in distilling. Fast forward to the mid-2000s and the Nelson brothers rediscover their distilling roots while on a trip with their father. A seemingly chance encounter reignited a passion within their bloodlines to claim their seat at the whiskey royalty table. They weren't ashamed to talk about their utilization of sourced whiskeys and were not focusing on producing clear liquor to pay the bills initially. Instead, they sought out good quality sourced bourbon to launch their Bellmead line. In an already growing marketplace in the 2010s, brand recognition was a hard-fought battle. 
They made their name within the community by pounding the pavement, using the growing bar and restaurant scene in and around Nashville to build a brand from nothing. All of the work paid off when, on December the 5th of 2014, they were able to host the grand reopening of the Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery. They chose that date because it also happens to coincide with Repeal Day. During the small tour, it felt like I could take less than 100 steps and touch any part of the operation. It genuinely felt like a startup where any employee in the building was likely capable of doing any job at any time. On display was a beautiful Vendome copper still and their charcoal filtration operation. While the product coming off the still was not the product that would be in the bottle in the gift shop that day, they walked us through their process of trying to recreate the family recipe. Because they didn't have an actual recipe to work from, they attempted to forensically recreate the mash bill. Going back to grain purchase records from the company, they have hopefully recreated the historical recipe, which would eventually become Nelson's first 108 Tennessee whiskey, and finally Nelson's Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey. The first 108 was a commemorative line that was bottled from the first 108 barrels to have been produced by the distillery in 108 years. When I tasted their source bourbon, I was immediately impressed with their ability to select good quality bourbon to build their brand on. I've kept my eye on their brand, and I keep at least one bottle of their flagship Bellmead bourbon on the shelf at all times. When you are doing something right, people start to notice. So in 2016, Constellation Brands acquired a minority ownership of the distillery, but the Nelson brothers maintained their management. Success is contagious, and in 2019, Constellation increased their share to a majority ownership. Not wanting to mess with success, Constellation continues to keep the Nelson brothers at the head of the company to continue to build this wonderful brand. Next on the agenda, I'll talk about Peerless Distilling Company. I remember when Peerless was set to release their first bottles in 2019. I had just recently become more serious about my particular obsession with collecting bottles with an interesting design and or story. I almost made the three plus hour drive to the distillery in Louisville because of pure and an unadulterated FOMO. For those of you that don't know, FOMO is the fear of missing out. I think that was probably the first time I bought into the hype enough to generate FOMO. If I had made the trip, I probably would have developed some severe regrets. Not because it wasn't worth it, but because it was highly unlikely that I'd have actually gotten a bottle that day. Lines formed early, bottles sold out quickly, and the hype train was gaining speed. About nine months later, I was stocking up for a company retreat, and there it was, a single bottle. Instead of snatching it up and sticking it on my shelf at home, I carried it with me to the meetings. Most of my coworkers are casual bourbon drinkers, and I've become known as the bourbon guy. And that's why I was asked to put together the selection for the trip. It mostly sat on the counter for the first night as they reached for brands that they knew. Maker's Mark, Basil Hayden, even Jack Daniels seemed to reign the night. Once they had settled in, I decided it was time to tell them the story of Peerless. I think that's the allure of revival brands for me. They give us a chance to expose new drinkers to new brands while sharing about whiskey history. Peerless Distilling Company is originally from Henderson, Kentucky. And if you know anything about the geography of Kentucky, you'll know that Henderson is farther west than most people in the Louisville-Frankfurt-Lexington Triangle think Kentucky even goes. It was the largest distillery west of Green River pre-Prohibition, clocking around 200 barrels per day. Instead of shutting down due to prohibition, Peerless actually shut down their operations in 1917. The owner, Henry Craver, sold his equipment three years before the ratification and enactment of the Volstead Act. Craver's reasoning is thought to be an attempt to aid in the effort to conserve corn as a part of the war effort, but it could have easily been an astute businessman making an observation of the growing popularity of the temperance movement. What he didn't sell was his whiskey stock. During Prohibition, Craver was able to sell his last spirits as medicinal whiskey. Once that was gone, it was the end of the line for the Peerless brand. 
Or maybe it wasn't. Fast forward five or so generations, and we find a great-grandson of Henry Craver deciding it was time for the family to get back into the business of distilling. Unique to their venture was the ability to launch a brand and have the financial stability to wait for their first bourbon and rye bottles to be released without using sourced bourbon. To bridge the gap between distillation and maturation, they produced a line called Lucky Moonshine. The bottles certainly stand out on the shelf. The creative direction of the distillery dictated that they recreate the closest rendition that they can of the original bottles. I read somewhere that it took over two years to get the shape and the quality of the bottle just right for the owner. If it wasn't enough of an effort to launch a brand new line of bourbon, they are also releasing some top shelf rise as well. Most brands will wait years to launch a single barrel program, but Peerless didn't wait. You can find some very unique single barrel products on their website, in their distillery, or in many stores across the United States of America. The last brand on the agenda today will be a historical brand with a super premium history. In Maysville, Kentucky, on the side of a hill overlooking the river sits the new location for the Old Pogue Distillery. Old Pogue is not a new line, so to speak, but they are new to the modern bourbon drinker. Maysville is the type of place you have to go to intentionally, and it's not even remotely close to what would be considered the bourbon trail. Old Pogue owns the DSP number of three. For those uninitiated in the bourbon world, that would identify them as being the third distillery in this state that was licensed. Being able to claim a historic lineage is essential to the story that revival brands want to tell. H.E. Pogue purchased the distillery after working as the head distiller for the previous owner's line. Pogue quickly built a reputation as both creating some of the finest bourbon in the world while building up a large business strictly through honorable methods. H.E. Pogue I and H.E. Pogue II both died in accidents while working at the distillery. When H.E. Pogue II passed, his son H.E. Pogue III was informed of his death while fighting in World War I. He returned home to the distillery only to quickly have to shutter it due to prohibition. Trying to make ends meet during Prohibition, Pogue was able to sell limited quantities of its product for medicinal purposes. Pogue III was able to expand its ownership of distilleries in the state of Kentucky while distributing much of its product through the infamous George Remus. Trying to maintain an honorable business would lead to an eventual death of the Pogue line of whiskey in the state of Kentucky. But once you play a part in the legacy of bourbon, it's very hard to leave. H.E. Pogue III sold the family business after Prohibition ended, but he continued to work as a consultant to other businesses trying to restart their distilleries. I'd never really thought about it until beginning to research this brand, but the idea of a bourbon consultant isn't a new concept. It only makes sense that distilleries would need help reopening after such a jarring legal situation, but it's not something we modern consumers focus on. Like the rest of the brands in this episode, Old Pogue wouldn't die there. It's almost as if there is some sort of a yearning in the blood that seeks the ability to create bourbon. The bourbon boom helps resurrect these wonderful stories. The direct descendants of Pogue sought to revive the brand. While the knowledge of distilling may have passed with the generations, it doesn't seem the ability to discern fine, super-premium whiskeys did. The family business is brought back to life using a couple of old bottles of the Old Pogue as a divining rod for great flavor. They contract with Heaven Hill to produce for them a fine bourbon that they can hang their hat on while distilling and laying down their own product. Currently, demand seems to outstrip their ability to produce. The largest majority of their bourbon is purchased through their quaint gift shop far from the rest of the bourbon trail. Interestingly enough, it appears that it is likely the first Pogue family distilled bourbon in the last 100 years may be for sale this year. Revival brands tend to attract a certain amount of negative attention within the deep-seated bourbon community. It's becoming trendy to poke fun at the stories of discovered old recipes. And if your focus is exclusively on the contents of the bottle, I'd say cheers to you. But I think that misses some of the beauty of this particular spirit. It's one steeped in tradition with the rich and wonderful stories. It's a starting point for learning about history. It's a true enhancement to your enjoyment of a product. 
While the contents of the bottle reign supreme, it's hard to dismiss the impact of a wonderful label, a cool bottle design, and a great backstory has on your individual enjoyment. If none of those things mattered to any American consumer, everything would be packaged in the cheapest manner. Much like a fine dining experience, people eat with their ears first, their eyes second, their nose third, and their taste buds last. If the ambiance is bad in a restaurant, it's a mark against its quality of its establishment. If the plate eating is bad, it's another negative mark. And if the smell is off-putting, you may never even taste the food. Finally, you get to enjoy the fruits of someone's labor. You go to the restaurant for the entire experience. I think you should approach bourbon in the same way. It's an entire experience, one meant to be enjoyed with others. It's an opportunity to evaluate a particular brand's ethos, pathos, and logos. Understanding the entirety of the story that they're trying to tell. Understanding the quality of the product that they're trying to bring forward. Understanding the artistry that they want to bring forward to us. All of these things play an important part in our enjoyment of this particular spirit. Thanks for listening to the Embellish Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe. Check out our website at embellishpod.com and follow us on social media at Instagram and Twitter to keep up with what we have going on. If you have an idea about a story we should talk about, send it to us at embellishpod at gmail.com. And remember, whether famous or infamous, a good story mixed with a touch of embellishment makes the food you ate, the drink you drank, and the places you visited just a little more memorable.